The Dreyfus Affair was one of the most important events in all of modern Jewish history, and its repercussions and reverberations are still with us today. In this class, we retell the story of Alfred Dreyfus, how a French army captain was falsely accused of espionage, how anti-Semitism defined his trial, and how the Jewish and global responses shaped the major world events of the 20th century and beyond. And how does God fit into the story? As always, please like and share this podcast. And if you have any questions, please leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. In 1890, the French military was working on developing the Howitzer Model C. If you've ever gone ahead and when it comes to, you know, if you ever shot a handgun, for example, or a rifle, there's something called kick. If you ever shot a gun, it kicks back. Why is that happening? Newton, our good friend, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. When a gun is shot, the bullet goes out one way, but the, the, whatever shot the gun, the cannon, the, 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 the gun, whatever shot the bullet, which goes out that way, it creates an equal and opposite reaction against the cannon, against the handgun, against the rifle. And the rifle is actually going to go backwards, hence kick. The same amount of force that's shooting the bullet that way is pushing back against the gun that way. And that's what you have, you have uh, kickback. When you're shooting a handgun or a rifle, you know, you use the strength of your body, your arm, your shoulder, whatever it may be, to try to absorb that force. That force goes through you and gets stuck in the ground. It goes into the ground. That's what happens. When you're dealing with a massive cannon, like a howitzer, these massive cannons, the, the recoil, the amount of force that's going backwards into the cannon is massive. And armies, militaries, they've known this since the inception of cannons, that you build these ginormous, gigantic, humongous cannons. It's great, but, and it can wreak havoc and do all the things that you're trying to do militarily. But the problem is, is that the cannon wants to go backwards. So they tried, you know, fixing it into the ground and bolting it and this and that so that the energy will go through the cannon into the ground. The problem is at a certain point, they become so big, they just, they need a move. So different armies and different militaries over the centuries have developed different systems, of cannons on wheels and ropes and chains and pulleys so that the cannon can actually move a little bit, absorbing some of the recoil. And in 1890, the French military was developing a howitzer, a massive cannon that would have this, it was actually their first cannon that had a built-in recoil system where the cannon would actually have a part of it that would actually move back and forth to help absorb part of this energy. And this was a top secret, new type of cannon, state-of-the-art in the French army. In France, I believe in Paris at the time, Germany had their embassy. And there was a French woman who was the maid who was doing the mopping and the cleaning and taking out the trash inside this German embassy. Her name was Madame Dastain. She was actually a spy. She was a spy working for the French military, trying to see what kind of information, what kind of secrets can we see the Germans working on. And one day as she's taking out the trash, she noticed a document, a piece of paper, written by someone in the French military, describing the secrets of this Howitzer Model C. Someone had been passing the secrets on to the German military. Someone had been going ahead and transmitting the background, the details of how this Howitzer, the recoil system. There was a spy, there's a mole somewhere in the French army that's going ahead and passing on this information to the Germans. <coughs> Who was it? Who was the guilty party? Tonight, or this morning, we're going to talk about the Dreyfus Affair. The Dreyfus Affair is one of the most significant stories in modern Jewish history. In my opinion, it's really the first great or notorious example of anti-Semitism in the modern era. We're going to talk about it. What was the story? What are some of its lessons? What are some of its consequences? 
The background, in order to understand the Dreyfus Affair and to understand what's going on and why it reverberated, and, and it can't be overstated how big of a deal it was in France at the time, it became a massive story. It almost, took, it actually did tear the country apart. It was a story of anti-Semitism. It's a story of corruption. It's a t- story about the French military. And it tore the country apart. When we think about anti-Semitism in Europe, especially in the 19th century, we tend to think about anti-Semitism in the East. Roughly speaking, just to set the stage of what's going on, 19th century, Jews can be found in different regions of Europe. The overwhelming majority of Jews were in Eastern Europe, in areas like Poland, the Ukraine, Lithuania, Russia, Really, all those places were under the czar, under czarist Russia. And they had faced institutionalized anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism was a fact of life. It was a reality of life throughout the 1800s if you were living in Eastern Europe, which is where the bulk of the Jewish population was living. My guess is looking around this room, many, if not most people here in this room today, you have your antecedents, your Great-grandparents were from Russia. Everyone said, oh, I'm from Russia. They're probably from Poland or Lithuania. Those countries were under the czarist rule in the, in the 19th century. And that's, that's what you meant. They were from Russia. That, they were under the czar. The czar had passed anti-Semitic decrees, which was crushing to the Jewish community. Things from the Pale of Settlement. Jews in the 19th century were restricted to living in a very, very constricted slice of Tsarist Russia. They were only allowed to live in a very, very small area. Jews were only allowed to participate in very few trades, very few professions. Jews were conscripted into the army, which was functionally a death death sentence. Jews were second-class citizens. And that was the reality of life. That's what life looked like in the, in, the, in, in the East, in Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, all those places. Frankly, all the way up to World War II. That's what Jewish life was in the East. On the same time, those Jews looking at their counterparts, who was their next door neighbor, most of the non-Jews were backwards. That was just the reality, especially in Poland. There was very little Jewish assimilation during these times. Your average non-Jew living in Poland was backwards, illiterate, drunk, and beat their wives. And I know that's a generality, but it was, it was true. These were not, Jews and the non-Jewish population really were very divided because the non-Jewish world in Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine was really, really, really backwards. Frankly, it still is to a large degree in a lot of these areas. I mean, I don't know, there are some regions in Poland that I don't, I don't think they still have running water. I mean, it's, these are backwards places. These are really, really strange places, openly anti-Semitic, and the anti-Semitism was institutionalized, and that's a key part. It was part of the official government policy, was anti-Semitism, and Jews just figured out how to live with that, or not how to live with that. Many Jews would go ahead and emigrate to the United States of America, really beginning in the late 1800s, because things were so intolerable. That was what life was like for Jews living out east. To the west, places like France and even in Central Europe, like Germany, life is completely different. Life for Jews was, was completely different. Jews officially received their emancipation in France in 17-something or other, you know, it goes back and forth. Napoleon officially, you know, emancipates the Jews. Jews were citizens, were given citizenship. Frederick the Great gives Jews in Prussia citizenship. And Jews were at least theoretically welcomed into society. Now, in Germany, it wasn't so simple. There'd be, there would be one step forward, two steps back. It was never Jews. It, it took a long time for the Jews to really get integrated, and they never fully did. And, and, you know, leading to the horrors of World War II. But in France, in France, where the Jewish population was very, very small, talk about the end of the 19th century, you're talking about 80, 90,000 Jews, and that's it, in a population of, I don't know, 40 million. 
was a very, very small population. Jews had full citizenship. Jews were wel- not welcomed into society, but they were allowed to participate in society. There weren't any an- official governmental anti-Semitic policies institutionalized within the government. It was a much more modern society. One of the repercussions of that is Jews began to assimilate very, very, very quickly. <coughs> By the late 1800s, Judaism in France specifically was, at least in terms of the religious outlook, had, was decimated. You're talking they now had been emancipated three generations. By the late 1800s, Jewish observance in France was minuscule. It was the overwhelming minority because Jews were welcomed into society. You know, culture, French society, you know, these were you know, distinguished looking people. These are people of high culture, of high class, of distinction. Very, very different than what Jewish life looked like in Eastern Europe at the same time. And it's at this time, the 1890s, the early 1890s, where if you were to find yourself in France and you, you were to be Jewish, you would say on the one hand, things are great. There's no institutionalized anti-Semitism. We're welcomed into society. Society around us you know, is cultured. People are, seem nice. But the reality was there still was anti-Semitism. There was a growing amount of anti-Semitism as we're going to see in just a moment. As this story of espionage, as we started with the Howitzer Model C, story of this espionage makes its way through the military higher-ups, the military wanted to keep this, as, didn't want to turn this into a big deal. Because after all, it's shameful, it's embarrassing. How did you let you know, your secret information about this new gun, this new cannon and the recoil system, how did this get out there? So they kind of wanted to keep it quiet. So what did they need to do? What they needed to do was try to find who the culprit was. If they couldn't figure out who the culprit was, let's find a scapegoat and call him the culprit, lock him away, and the matter will lie, you know, will go to rest. That was sort of the motivation of the French military higher-ups. They assume, rather clumsily, that who was it within the French military that had access to this information? They've assumed it's got to be someone who's in the French general staff, the high up, the general staff, who also must have had some kind of connection to artillery. That must be their area of expertise and their area of background. And they found their ideal culprit without really doing very much research. They just kind of arbitrarily narrowed it down based on those criteria. And if you kind of like narrow it down using a spreadsheet, you're going to have a list of a couple of people who would fit that criteria. None other than, I think he was a major at the time. No, he was a captain. Alfred Moore, Alfred, Alfred Dreyfus, whenever I talk about this story, I always say, and I'm going to apologize again, I always say Alfred Morris. Who was Alfred Morris? Rabbi Goldman? He was a running back on the Redskins about 10 years ago. <laughs> and I get Alfred Morris and Alfred Dreyfus. So we're not talking about the running back. We're talking about the captain in the French art, art, artillery. Okay, Alfred Dreyfus. Who was Alfred Dreyfus? His background is important. He is born in the area of, of Alsace-Lorraine. If you remember your European history, Alsace-Lorraine, for the last thousand years, has been an area of battleground between France and Germany. And it's gone back, I remember, I remember clear as, as day, you know, European, my AP Euro history. Thank you, Mrs. Wolf. I always thank Mrs. Wolf, my European history teacher. And we'd, oh, you'd always talk about who's got Alsace-Lorraine today. It's France. No, now it's Germany. Then it, go, it would be constantly going back and forth and back and forth. It's kind of along, I believe, in the Rhineland. And in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, Germany, they capture Alsace-Lorraine. Now it swings into German control. And, this, and so begins the unification of Germany under uh, Otto von, Bis- von Bismarck really the beginning of uh, you know, German consolidation. Dreyfus was born in Alsace-Lorraine. Now, the, there was, Alsace-Lorraine had a big, and, and still does, have a, has a substantial Jewish population. Jews in the Alsace-Lorraine region were culturally, ethnically, more affiliated with German Jewry. These were Yekka Jews, if, for those who are 
familiar. These were Jews who were ethnically German. So after 1870, these Jews who were from Alsace-Lorraine, they had to figure out, now what do we do? Because they had been, up to that point, Frenchmen. And now all of a sudden, this area just got gobbled up by Germany. What do we do? So many Jews, they just stayed put, and now we're part of Germany. Many Jews decided, we're going to the interior. We're proud Frenchmen, and we're going to move to the interior. And that's what, Al, that's what Alfred Dreyfus did. He was born and raised in Alsace-Lorraine. After the, um, the Franco-Prussian War, he moves inland into France. He always wanted to be a soldier. He always wanted to be a soldier. Um, so he's Alsatian. He's Jewish. From the... French military perspective, he's the perfect culprit. He's from an ethnically German background. He's Jewish, and Jews can never be trusted. Jews are always traitors. Jews are always liars. Jews are always duplicit. He was the perfect scapegoat. And they decided, without really doing any real investigation, Dreyfus is our man. The problem was, is that, first of all, Dreyfus wasn't the man. But number two, he was a very bad Scapegoat, Because as I mentioned, Dreyfus always wanted to be a soldier in the French army. He was a good soldier. He was a colorless person. He had no personality. He didn't have the personality of someone who you expect to be a spy. He just didn't have that. He had no demerits against him ever in the French army. He comes from a rich background. His father, his in-laws were wealthy people. So he had nothing to gain to be a spy. It certainly wouldn't be for the money. He was a proud Frenchman. He didn't really fit the bill of being a, a German spy. But the French military didn't care, didn't care. And they decide he is the guy. He's arrested in October of, of 1894. They try to, you know, they threaten him to, make, to try to get him to confess. But he refused. He was a very proud soldier who took his integrity very seriously. Goes to trial in November of 1894. Now, this is an important point. Who, is the, the, who are the judges? Where is, does he stand trial? He stands trial in a military tribunal. He does not go to court in front of a French court. It's a court-martial. And although the French court, the Supreme Court, and the whole judicial system, you know, may have had a little bit of integrity to it, it may or may not, the French military court had no integrity whatsoever. And that's going to be really the, the major focal point of all the brouhaha that's going to be the Dreyfus affair, it really has to do with the French court-martial system, the French military tribunals, which were corrupt. Because the French, again, the French military, they wanted him to be guilty so that they can make this whole episode go away. And who was the one that sent those secrets to Germany? It's this guy Dreyfus, and the whole, the whole affair is done with. He's the guy, he's the culprit, guilty as charged, and move on. The court proceedings was a closed court, wasn't open to any kind of outside scrutiny. It had all the recipe, all the ingredients necessary for all sorts of corruption. As this is happening, as Dreyfus is standing trial, there's a notorious anti-Semite in France, Edouard Drummond, who is a terrible one, most notorious anti, certainly the most notorious anti-Semite in France during this time, and he publishes a paper. And when he gets wind, when he learns that there is a French officer in the general staff who's being accused of treason, who's being accused of being a spy, you know, he sensationalizes it. And he goes to the press, and it marks the beginning of what would be a very, very public rift and a very public battle in the papers you know, some people calling Dreyfus a traitor, a scoundrel, a Jew, a liar, a, and everything bad. And as we're going to see, slowly but surely, there's going to be a different group, and it's going to have a lot of reach within the press to defend Dreyfus and to go ahead and point out all the flaws in the military tribunal. So she said the trial begins in December 1894. In order to condemn, condemn Dreyfus, the military has to have some kind of evidence. So what are they going to go ahead to, you know, other than he's an Alsatian Jew? Like, you need a little bit more than that. So what they did was, is they brought in a pseudoscientific 
expert who really had no business, he didn't know what he was doing, who is a supposed handwriting expert. He's an expert in handwriting. And he went ahead and he said in front of the court, he looked at samples of Dreyfus's handwriting and he looked at that note, which by the way, you can see that it's unbelievable. That note which starts, which ignites this whole uh, tumult, it's, it, I think it's somewhere in the shrine of the book or something like that, somewhere in Israel. Uh, we, it's, it's in it's Jewish Heritage Museum, one of those museums, they've got it. It was actually, it was, what happened was that, that maid found it ripped up, but it wasn't ripped up very well. It was like ripped up into like six pieces and it was easily taped together. And this expert went ahead and compared the handwriting on that tree, on that note that was passed from some French officer to the Germans, compared the handwriting on that note to Dreyfus's handwriting. And sure enough, what did this expert find? It's not the same handwriting, but this guy, he's an expert. He said, although it's not the same handwriting, I can tell you with certainty that, who, that it's the same person who wrote it. Because I can tell the person who wrote that note was trying to cover for their real handwriting. And it's all a fake. It's really, it is Dreyfus's handwriting. This guy had no credentials, no background, and that's what his claim was. As this is happening, another interesting character emerges on the scene. Major Hubert Joseph Henry, or Henri, or whatever, how you ever pronounce that in French? Saying it, Henri? I, I apologize profusely to all my French friends. I can never pronounce anything that's ever written, ever, that's French. Henri? Henri, all right. <clears throat> so Colonel Henry... No, <laughs> So this fellow, Major Henri, he shows up to the tribunal. He says, I've got shocking evidence. He goes before the military tribunal and he says, someone told me, someone told me Dreyfus is guilty. That they know for sure Dreyfus was the guy who wrote it. Everyone says, who was that person? Let's bring him in, cross-examine. Let's find that evidence. I can't tell you. If I tell you who it is, it... There are too many secrets in the French military. I can't tell you who it is. But he points to a crucifix on the, war, on the wall and he swears on his own honor. Someone told me that Dreyfus is guilty. Dreyfus is standing in the thing. He says, bring this guy in. I, like, he's shouting, like, cross-examine. Who is the guy? Who's your secret informant? What does the military tribunal say? Don't worry, that's good enough for us. Guilty is charged all seven judges who serve as both judge and jury, unanimously find Dreyfus guilty. And on January 5th, or really back up, it's on December 22nd, he's found guilty. Guilty of treason. Now, in French law, what really should happen, if someone is guilty of treason, certainly in the 1890s, usually it's off with your head, but France had experienced all you know, a big backlash with uh, executing people from you know, the reign of terror and this and that. And they had passed laws that they... They didn't have the death penalty. So what they did was they gave they, they issued two things for, for Dreyfus. They sentenced him to two things. First of all, life imprisonment out in Devil's Island. Where is Devil's Island? Somewhere in the middle of the Caribbean, in the middle of nowhere, tropical diseases, middle of nowhere. He's going to live on a, you know, a penal colony out in Devil's Island, middle of nowhere. And number two, they called it degradation. But pronounce that in French, degradation, something like that. Again, I apologize. Does anyone have a croissant for me, right? <clears throat> Military degradation. And we have pictures of it. It's a remarkable thing where they paraded, they had this whole elaborate ceremony where they paraded Dreyfus in front of a big military square, thousands of cadets and soldiers watching on. He's in his, Dreyfus is in his military uniform. They rip off his, I can never, I always forget the word, epaulets, epaulets, epithets. One of them is a curse. One of them means what's on your tombstone. And one of them are those lines on your, what is it? The epaulets? Epaulets. Thank you. How many points in Scrabble for epaulets? They rip off his epaulets publicly. Then they take Dreyfus's sword and they crack it over his, oh, you know, the, 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 supervising officer cracks it over his knee and there's a famous picture of Dreyfus standing and the guy cracking the sword over his knee and they issue this whole proclamation that calls him a, you know, a coward, a traitor, a spy, a terrible things. The whole time that this is happening, 
Dreyfus is shouting, I'm an innocent man, long live France, you know, long live the army, I'm innocent. Everyone else that's around him, what are they shouting? Kill the Jews. Death to the Jews. And he's sent off to Devil's Island where he will languish. He was the only person there on Devil's Island except for the wardens who were making sure that he wouldn't escape. He'd be shackled. His, I believe the, the hut that he lived in is still there. They had him chained to the bed. Horrors. All sorts of disease. He would lose like 50 pounds. It was terrible. And that's the end of round one. After that, his, he had a brother named Matthew Dreyfus who really believed that his brother, Alfred, was innocent. And he made it his you know, mission to try to uncover what was going on, what happened. His brother had been framed. At the same time, in July of 1895, there was a major named, named George Picard, who's assigned to be the head of the staff of the military intelligence service. He is in charge of military in- intelligence. And not a particular, it's not like he's friendly to the Jews or anything. He's just doing his job. And in March 1896, in his role as in char- being in charge of military intelligence, comes to his attention that another note has been found. Another note has been found in the German embassy. I don't know the exact details of how they found it. I don't know if it's the same maid or whoever. But they find another note similarly passing on French military secrets to the Germans. Now, Picard says, well, he looks at it, he says, he remembered, I mean, everyone knew about the, the, the original Dreyfus trial, and he got himself, he wanted to, you know, check out that original note that, of that original informant. And he looks at the handwriting, and sure enough, they're exactly the same. Well, that's a big problem. Why? Dreyfus is out on an island 3,000 miles away. Clearly, he wasn't the guy who was sending the information to Germany. This is simple. This is not complicated, right? Should be the end of the story. It's obviously you've got the wrong guy. He goes ahead and... forwards it along... He does his own research, tries to figure out who is the fellow sending the second telegram, the second, the second note, who was it? And doing a little bit of research, digging, he comes across a French officer named Major, I think his name is what, William? I don't have his first, Ferdinand. Ferdinand Esterhazy. Ferdinand Esterhazy. Now, I'm no expert, but Esterhazy is a quite a, that's a, that's a German-sounding name. He has, it's Hungarian? It's a Hungarian. Okay, it's certainly not a French name. A fellow named Esterhazy. He does, checks, I think the handwriting, he's able to say the handwriting actually matches this guy's Esterhazy. Um, Picard researches who is this guy. He's a man with personality disorder, a really bad reputation, has a ton of debt, um, and... You know, he's the perfect guy to be a traitor. He was a drunk. He was everything notorious about this guy. And he's convinced, it's clear as day, who was really the guilty party? Esterhazy, like a smoking gun, everything, the handwriting, everything for both notes, for everything. He's, he has you know, every reason to be behind it. Esterhazy is the guy. So he goes ahead and he brings it up to the higher-ups in the French general staff. You've got the wrong guy. The real guy is this guy, Esterhazy. What does the German staff say? They don't want to hear it. They already got their guy. The the whole story is over with. They don't want to bring it back up. Our guy is in prison in the middle of the Caribbean somewhere, languishing in a, you know, dying in a hut, you know, with all sorts of tropical diseases. They don't care. They want the system to go. They just want this to go away. But, you know, they got to go ahead and, and go through the motions. They, they, as soon as they send Picard, they don't want, he's causing too much trouble, so Picard gets reassigned to like North Africa. You're gonna, they, he gets reassigned. And they have a show trial for this guy, Esterhazy. After about two minutes of deliberation, no, three minutes of deliberation, I apologize, he's acquitted unanimously, and he's paraded out of the courtroom. Everyone cheers. There are thousands of people waiting for him. Um, and just to make things, you know, 
better, the French general staff decides, you know what, we're going to arrest that guy Picard, and they charge him with violation of professional secrecy, uh, he disclosed too much information, and he goes to trial. I think he's actually found guilty. Esterhazy, you know, is a sleazy character, a notorious character. He decides it's probably in his best interest to quietly slip away to England and not stand or stay too long in France. Goes to England a couple of years later, and while, you know, he, sh- he changes his name, he had this ridiculous looking mustache, he shaves that off, he becomes an anonymous person, but someone tracked him down, some journalist tracked him down and got him to sit for an interview. And in September of 1898, being interviewed by this lady, he said, he confesses, yeah, I was the guy. It was me, you know, I'm the guy. As all of this happening, you know, it's a terrible miscarriage of justice. It's te- all the wrong people are going to jail and all the right people are being innocent. Um, this fellow Picard, he leaks some of the information to someone in the, I think in the French Senate or whatever, whatever it is. And that fellow goes ahead and passes that information on to a couple of journalists. And this wasn't really a, a case of like deep investigative journalism. This is not like, you know, Watergate, Deep Throat, Woodward and Bernstein type of stuff. All the information is basically at this point, it's kind of public knowledge. But there was one journalist who really is totally outraged. He's not particular. He doesn't care about Jews. He, I, to my knowledge, he actually had post had previously written some casual anti-Semitic um, articles in the past. He is really more outraged at the miscarriage of justice and how corrupt the French military courts are. This fellow's name is Emile Zola. Emile Zola. He really he's outraged by what happens. And on. Let me get the right dates. On, I don't know, in, when was it? I think it's 1899, 1898. He publishes a 4,500-word article on the front page of the big newspaper. And it's an open letter to the president of France. And the name of the, the title of his article is famously, J'accuse, I accuse. And basically what it is, it's a summation of the terrible miscarriages of justice, the corruption, all the fraud, all the lying, everything, how horrible this case was. And it's an open letter written to the, prime, to the president of France. Uh, Zola's, goal, Zola's goal was to make himself a target. Um, he wanted to go ahead. He was hoping to get prosecuted just to really like bring it out, to turn it into a scandal, which it was. Um, and what it ended up doing, I mean, it, 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 within France, if we stop right here, I mean, this really set off, just a, ignited a power keg of an explosion. And really, France was divided down the middle between what was called the Dreyfusards, who are people who supported Dreyfus, and the anti-Dreyfusards, people who were anti-Dreyfus. And this was the O.J. Simpson trial. It was the trial of the century. Because, again, it's not just about anti-Semitism. It really was, although anti-Semitism is clearly and obviously what's kind of at the core of this whole thing, but it had other elements. It had to do with justice. It had to do with corruption. It had to do with fraud. It had to do with the military. And it became a humongous deal. And indeed, Zola was prosecuted and found guilty, sentenced to a year in prison for slander, for sedition, he escapes to England, um, and he flees. In 1898, just to make things even worse, remember our good friend Major Henry Henri? At a certain point after getting pressured, he admits he made the whole thing up. But just as this plot thickens, he goes ahead, they, they, they arrest him. He slits his throat with a razor in prison the very next day. What happens? All the anti-Dreyfusards and the anti-Semites, what do they say? He was killed by the Jewish mafia. Because really he you know, was innocent and he knew all the details of Dreyfus's guilt. 
And he was a good guy, and he was killed by the Jewish mafia, the elders of Zion, who control the world. The Dreyfusards say he was bumped off by the military because he had all the inside information, and he knew how corrupt the French military was. And it, again, it just furthered the, uh, just the tension that was within France. At this point, the French military, the French you know, the Supreme Court of France, they got involved, but the reality is they didn't have control. The French judicial system, you know, they were like, this is crazy, but their hands were tied. This was really a French military affair. The French military decides they have to go ahead and they've got to go ahead and have a second trial for Dreyfus. They sent for Dreyfus in 1899. He's been on Devil's Island for about a half a decade, totally oblivious to everything that's going on. He has no idea what's happening. He's emaciated. Even when they stick him on the boat back to France, he has no idea what's going on. He gets back to France. They tell him we're going to have a second trial. Great. September 9th, 1899, they have a second trial. And the court finds him guilty. A second time. It's just a total, it's just outrageous at a certain point. And the country is, is literally tearing itself apart. The prime minister realizes they can't let this go on any farther. It's, it's out of control. And after a lot of haggling and back and forth, Dreyfus says he's going to appeal. He's not, you know, innocent, 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 you know, the whole time. They decided that they, they passed a law, an amnesty, amnesty law covering all criminals, criminal acts or misdemeanors related to the Dreyfus affair or that had been included in a prosecution for one of these acts. And everyone, all that, the Henri's, the... The Zolas, the Picards, all these guys, everyone, were just exonerating everyone except for Dreyfus. But they decided, they decided you know what, they, sent, they had initially sent the second trial, I forgot to mention, they sentenced him, they said, we're not sending you back to Devil's Island for life, you're just going to have 10 years of hard labor, which probably would have killed him. But the Prime Minister decided, you know what, we're going to pardon you. Now, Dreyfus really was, had a lot of tension. He didn't want to get pardoned because that would kind of, to some degree, mean accepting guilt. In the end, he accepted the pardon. Um, and that was that. On September 29th, 1902, Zola... So now, so now Dreyfus is where he is. In 1902, Zola dies in a mysterious way. He's in his house. There's a fire in his house. He doesn't die in the fire. He's asphyxiated. Carbon monoxide poisoning. His wife almost died also. In 1953, someone that makes a deathbed confession, he claims he, he, was on, he stopped the chimney and he killed Zola. By 1906, um, the, there was a new attorney general in France. He issues an 800-page uh, report, demands can that all the convictions be, be quashed and be overturned. And by 1906, you know, things, it's already been now 12 years, things have cooled a little bit in France, not totally, but like the, the episode is somewhat past. Um, and they decide that they're going to read, they're going to pardon, they're going to not just pardon him, but they're declaring him innocent. They reinstitute him into the army. They, they actually go ahead and they, um, they, they raise his rank to reflect what he would have been had he been in the army the whole time. He becomes a, I think, a major at that point. And he becomes Major Dreyfus. He actually goes back into the army where he serves for one year, but he has to retire because of all the diseases, the tropical fevers, chronic fatigue, that all stemmed from his imprisonment on Devil's Island. In 1908, when they had some kind of ceremony for Emile Zola, they moved his ashes from A to B. So Dreyfus felt it would be appropriate that he went to that ceremony. This guy, Emil Zolo, is, after all, the guy who got him out of, out of prison. He goes to the ceremony, and what happens? Assassination attempt. Someone shoots him in his arm. He survives. The culprit is apprehended. He goes to trial. What do you think happened to him? Innocent. In 1914, World War I breaks out. Dreyfus is not an eye. He's not, he had already retired ten, you know, eight years earlier. But it's war. he was still a, a soldier in the reserve, so he decides he's going to go back to the army. And he does, and he became, again, a, an artillery officer, participates in World War I, where he served on, on, uh, honorably. He, fa he faced direct combat. He had 
two of his, he had one of his children, you know, got some high metal. Matthew Dreyfus, his brother, two of his kill, kids were killed in action. And Dreyfus was in charge of a battery. And in that battery, there were several 1890 Howitzer Model C's. Just kind of full circle. He dies in 1935 at the age of 75. Dreyfus is an interesting person. Throughout this whole episode, he was, he, as I mentioned, he, was, he had no personality. He's actually like a non-compelling person. He probably missed the severity of how this turned into certainly a national referendum on anti-Semitism and corruption. He kind of missed all of that. He was a completely irreligious Jew. He had nothing to do with his Judaism. He never even really saw he, the, the elements of anti-Semitism he probably missed. Um, he probably, he's a very confusing figure. He's really actually an uninteresting figure historically, especially when you consider how this episode really became such a massive, massive uh, story. And that's really the end of the Dreyfus. That's the, that's, the, that's the story of the Dreyfus affair. While all this is happening, during the different trials, I think the second trial, maybe even the first trial, I don't remember, there's a young Viennese journalist who kind of covered this whole, whole episode. And his name was, of course, Theodore Herzl. Herzl grows up a completely irreligious Jew, nothing to do with his Judaism, completely detached from his Judaism. He grows up you know, in Central Europe. Again, he doesn't see the anti-Semitism of Jews back East. He never saw or experienced firsthand the horrors of what life was like under you know, the Tsarist Russia and Poland, Lithuania. He lived in Vienna, where Jews were emancipated. Jews, there was quite anti-Semitism, or it certainly wasn't you know, as overt as what was going on back east. And he was covering the Dreyfus Affair. And when he saw what was going on, and when he saw that the anti-Semitism had crept from just being you know, just a bunch of anti-Semites you know, out in the street, but it actually crept up into institutionalized anti-Semitism. It had found its way in major institutions of the country. It was at that point, I mean, this is how the legend goes, and it's, it's, it's a bit of an overstatement, but it's true. That's when Herzl decides he needs to, you know, Zionism was his thing. And he would write directly. He said, the affair acted as a catalyst in conversion of Herzl, and he would write, if France... Bastion of emancipation, progress, and universal socialism can get caught up in the maelstrom of anti-Semitism and let the Parisian crowd chant kill the Jews, where can they be safe once again, if not their own country? Assimilation does not solve the problem because the Gentile world will not allow it as the Dreyfus Affair has so clearly demonstrated. And so is born modern Zionism as a direct repercussion as a direct repercussion of the, of the Dreyfus Affair. In so many ways, the Dreyfus Affair, although it's a story about, you know, 130 years ago, it's so relevant today's day and age. Life today in the United States, thank God, we don't have institutionalized anti-Semitism. But at the same time, anti-Semitism is clearly on the rise, thank you, Kanye West. We see anti-Semitism all around us. And just like in France, even though, thank God, we are blessed and the United States of America has been, without exception, the safest place for Jews in our 2,000-year diaspora and exile, without exception, the United States has been the safest place for Jews to live, certainly today in the United States, in our 2,000-year exile. And thank God we pray and continue to pray, Sim Shalom Tov Racha, God should bless us with peace. And we pray for the stability of the government in the United States of America. We pray for peace in the United States of America. And we have been blessed to not really have any institutionalized anti-Semitism. Never forget that institutions can very quickly become anti-Semitic. And although there is no institutionalized anti-Semitism in France, very quickly the military becomes institutionally anti-Semitic. So what do we do? People ask me all the time, especially the last few years as anti-Semitism has been on the rise, what do we do to combat anti-Semitism, Rabbi? You're so smart and brilliant and genius, right? What are the solutions to anti-Semitism? So everyone and their 
mother-in-law has their opinion of what we need to do to solve anti-Semitism. Everyone has their theory. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's brilliant. Everyone's got their idea. I've been thinking about it. What do we do to solve anti-Semitism? I realized I could do better than offering my own opinion. I'm going to call God. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to call God right now. Before your very eyes. God, please tell us, what should we do to solve anti-Semitism today in the United States of America? We wait your answer. Did you all hear it? Did you hear it? I heard it loud and clear. He actually told it to us 3,334 years ago. He told us exactly what we need to do to deal with anti-Semitism. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. Uh, let me back up. Not, not verse 15, pardon me. Sorry, verse, verse 1, chapter tw- Deuteronomy 28, 1. And it will be when you listen to the voice of, of the Lord your God, to, obse- to guard and perform all of his commandments that I command you today. And God will place you on top of all of the nations of the world. And all of these blessings, they will chase you, these blessings. They will hunt you down. That's how blessed you will be. Why? For you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed you will be in the city. Blessed you will be in the fields. Your, the fruits of your, of your wombs will be blessed. The fruits of your land will be blessed. All of your produce, all of your finances, everything will be blessed. Your, your cupboards, your baskets, they'll be blessed. You'll be blessed when you're, when you're coming in. You'll be blessed when you're going out. Your enemies who try to rise up against you, will be struck down before you. They'll try to get you, they'll pursue you on one path, but they'll scatter. They'll flee from you in seven paths in chaos. God will bless you. God will establish you as a holy people. As he sworn to you, because you have guarded the laws of the Lord your God, and you've gone in his ways. And then the final verse. We want to go ahead and stop anti-Semitism. We want all the people to go ahead and respect us and not pursue us and just leave us alone. And the nations of the world will see. Kishem Hashem Nikra Alecha. That the name of God is called upon you. The Yarumimeka. They'll be terrified of you. They're not going to start up with you. They're not going to try to accuse Dreyfus of treason. Kanye West won't post stupid tweets on social media. You know, I will tell you my observation, and it, it, I, there's no way to say it other than it frustrates me deeply whenever every other week, when terrifyingly, God forbid, you know, there's another anti-Semitic remark, another anti-Semitic event whether here in the United States or abroad. And we as Jews, we as Jews collectively, what's our first response? We're always looking outward. So they have to stop. And they do, of course they do. And you have the leaders of the ADL and the ACLU and everyone shouts and screams why everyone is wrong. And everyone is terrible. And they're right. Of course they're right. But if only it were that if we were to exert 50%, 10% of the energy that we shout and we scream about all the anti-Semitism, if we would just harness a little bit of that energy and go back to what God is telling us, if we would go ahead and be proud of our Judaism, if we would go ahead and embrace our Judaism collectively and look inward, and look at the data that shows that North American Jewry is falling apart in terms of Jewish engagement, in terms of 
Jewish connection, in terms of embracing the Torah, if we would follow God's recipe for success, I have no doubt, if we would just take a little bit of that energy and look inwards as well, we have to look outwards, don't get me wrong. We need to protect ourselves. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But you never hear voices to say, what does God want us to do? I'll tell you what God is not telling us to do. The response to anti-Semitism is to be stronger, bigger, and push back harder. We need to do that. But God is telling us, you know what you need to do to stop anti-Semitism? And it will be then you listen to the voice of Hashem, your God. To observe and to guard all of his commandments. That I've commanded you today. Don't worry. You'll be safe. You'll be protected. We should use the story of the Dreyfus affair, which is, you know, so scary. And it's, you know, it, it sounds like a story that could, you know, if I told you it happened 10 years from now, I don't think any of us would be shocked. How could that be? Well, let's go ahead. And the only way we can make sure, you know, that anti-Semitism is curbed. So of course, we need to protect ourselves. Of course, we need to go ahead and, you know, fight back against the Kanye Wests of the world. But if that's all we're doing, we've completely missed the point. We've completely missed the point. Look at the statistics. Look at where America, American Jewry is. We need to take that passion. We need to take that energy from the rise of anti-Semitism. Look externally is fine, but we also need it as a community, as a nation, as a people, to look inwardly, to embrace the Torah, to embrace our Judaism to go ahead and be a little bit more dedicated, study the Torah with a little bit more energy and passion. And please, God, if we do, God will protect us and shield us from anti-Semites moving forward. I want to thank you all for coming. If anyone has any questions, I'm here to stick around and answer all of the questions. Thoughts, questions, what do we say? Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.